Okay, we are in Revelation chapter 5 tonight. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1, where we read, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of a tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The word of God, let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious God, Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. We thank you for revealing, self, revealing yourself to us, Lord, by your spirit. We thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us as a congregation, Lord, through each other. We just pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord, that we would see you with uh, new eyes, Lord, that we would see new uh, things about you, Lord, that would make us love you more, would make us want to seek you more, God. We just pray that by your spirit tonight you would work through this study. We love you, we praise you, give you all the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we finished chapter four last week. This week we're starting chapter five. And the chapter break, you know, can make it seem like we moved on to a new part of the vision, but we really haven't. Remember, the chapter and verse breaks weren't added for a thousand years after the canon was closed. Uh, we're just a little further into the second cycle of John's vision that began in the previous chapter. Chapter 4 was just setting the scene for what's about to happen here. And we can see there's a continuation of the same vision of heaven and the throne of God, because a lot of the same language is used in this chapter. We see it talking about he who sits on the throne, who, as we saw, is Yahweh God, Christ, and his deity. Uh, it talks about the four living creatures that we saw as Christ in his incarnation. It talks about the 24 elders, which represent the saints of all time. And later in the chapter, we'll see uh, the description like we did in chapter 4 of those elders falling down and worshiping and crying out, worthy to Christ. And we're going to see a lot of references to God's creation. There were multiple references to this uh, in chapter 4, and we saw last week. John's making the point that the one he is seeing is the eternal, self-existent Yahweh God, as opposed to everything and everyone else who are merely creatures. So in chapter 4, John sees all this, Christ as God and man exalted in his glory as king. And then John sees this in verse 1. He says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So there's a scroll in Yahweh's right hand. And as we've seen, the right hand represents power and authority, but also care. Just like we saw with the stars in the right hand of Christ in chapter 1 here, the scroll in the right hand of God would indicate that God is the author. Literally, that's where we get the word authority. Uh, he's the author of the scroll, but also the caretaker of the scroll. And the question is, what is this scroll? Well, the idea of a scroll is not a new one. God showed some Old Testament prophets scrolls in their visions. And the scrolls represent God's accomplishment and revelation of redemption to his people, including the final judgment of the world. We see in the uh, prophecy of Ezekiel a scroll. We saw last week the vision of Ezekiel and the vision of John is having are very similar in a whole bunch of different ways. And here's another way. Starting in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9. Ezekiel says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. 
Let's take a note of a few things here. First, just the scroll that John is seeing here in Revelation 5, the scroll Ezekiel saw has writing on both the front and the back. And this, of course, is not usually how scrolls were used. Scrolls were made of parchment or vellum, which came from animal skins. They'd usually only be writing on one side, which would be the smooth side of the skin, the inside. And that would be rolled up with the writing on the inside. Here, Ezekiel says he sees this scroll contains writing on both sides. And what this shows is the completeness and the unchangeability of the word of God. In other words, what he says is final. It can't be added to, and it can't be taken away from. On this scroll, written inside and on the back side, on this scroll, there is no space to add anything because it's full on both sides. And if you take from it, it would be incomplete. It's the same thing we see when God gives the law on Mount Sinai in Exodus 32. We read that Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of a testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. See, tablets back then weren't usually engraved on both sides, only on one side. But when it's God's word, it is on both sides, whether tablets or scrolls, meaning it is complete and it is final. Again, Ezekiel 2. When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with the scroll I will give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Second thing to notice is that written on this scroll that Ezekiel sees are words of lamentation and mourning and woe. The question is, who's lamenting and mourning, and who is woe pronounced on? Well, God here says that the words are for Israel. Yet when God tells Ezekiel to eat the scroll, Ezekiel says that the scroll was as sweet as honey to him. See, the eating of the scroll is symbolic of the prophet taking in the word of God that he has to speak to the people of God. And even though the words of God here were words of lamentation and mourning and woe for Israel, the words were sweet in the mouth of Ezekiel because the words of God, even the words of God that teach us of trial and tribulation and mourning and lamentation, and woe, they are the words of God. And the plan of God, even when it's full of trials and tribulations for his people, it is the plan of God. And we should take comfort in that. It's the comfort of the word, knowing that like God's plan is final and unchangeable. This is our ultimate comfort through the trials and the tribulations and the mourning and the lamentations and the woe that we are going to face in this world. And this idea here of God's word being as sweet as honey is a call back to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 and verse 7, we read, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Always to talk about the word of God. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Even the prophet Jeremiah, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a very trying part, of a very trying ministry, in which he was called to prophesy to those who would be judged, even Jeremiah could say in Jeremiah 15, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. As we'll see later on in the book of Revelation, John is told to take the words of God from a scroll and eat them so he can prophesy. And this is what we read in Revelation 10, verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth. 
For when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So note here, the scroll, the word of God, once again, it is sweet to take in. It is sweet for the prophet to hear the words of God. But in this case, once John begins to digest what the word said, the word becomes bitter to him. Why? Because the prophecy that John is commissioned to give is a prophecy of great tribulation for God's people. One more time, back to the Ezekiel passage, Ezekiel 2. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, the scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. There were written on it words of lamentation and mourning. And well, the third thing to notice, that Ezekiel can see this writing on both sides, because he says here the scroll is spread out before him. But the scroll that John is seeing is a little different. It's not just rolled up, but it says it's sealed with seven seals. Revelation 5, then I saw in the right hand of him, which is Yahweh God, who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So the question is, can this be the same symbolic scroll that reveals God's plan of salvation and final judgment? Well, let's move a little ahead in time from Ezekiel to the prophet Daniel. And we've already looked at a bunch of the individual prophecies of Daniel uh, as they relate to Revelation. We've seen his prophecy a few weeks ago of the stone cut with no human hands that shadowed the statues that represented the kingdoms of the world and the stone became a huge mountain which was the everlasting kingdom of God. We've discussed the revelation from the angel Gabriel of the 70 weeks which is about the fulfillment of God's plan for Israel which is Christ. We've seen Daniel's vision of the beast with ten horns and the ancient of days and, and the son of man to whom was given glory and a kingdom which we saw as a prophecy of Christ and his victory and his exaltation. All of these prophecies as well as some other prophecies in the book of Daniel, are about Christ and about his work and God's salvation plan for his people. And when we look at the vision of the beast and the ancient days and the son of man, let's go back to that once, Daniel 7, we read this. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took a seat. This is God in his throne, like John is seeing. And his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. We see the Ezekiel uh, prophecy there. A stream of fire issued, and it came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw midnight visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and it was presented before him. And to, get, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. Now, we've gone over this already. So, in short, what Daniel sees is Christ in his deity, on his throne, and then as the, uh, the son of man. This is what we see John seeing here. Yahweh on his throne, the creatures representing the incarnation. But we see here the books or the scrolls were opened. And once the book is open or the scroll is open, Daniel sees the beast killed. He sees the son of man receive his kingdom. In other words, this is a vision of Christ and the salvation he brings. This is what the scroll or the books represent. And when we get to the end of the prophecy of Daniel, after more visions, this is what we read in Daniel 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the final judgment. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Remember we saw this, this is the stars that we talked about in Revelation 1. And those who turn many to righteousness, those who hold true to their testimony, like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. 
So here, and in Daniel's various visions and prophecies, we have a description of what the book of Revelation is describing here. It's the tribulations of this world, the final salvation and the judgment of the world. It's the book that is sealed here in Daniel. And in Hebrew, the word book just means something written. The same word is translated in the Old Testament as things like letter, literature, deed, book, or scroll. And the same goes for the word in the Greek, translated in Revelation 5 as scroll. It's the word biblion, where we get our word Bible. In the New Testament, it can be translated as book, scroll, certificate, a couple other things. The point is, the scroll that Ezekiel saw, ate, and prophesied from, represents the same thing with the scroll that Daniel prophesied from, in which he sealed, and it represents the same thing as the scroll that John sees. It is a revelation from God about his final salvation and judgment, and it is about Christ. Again, Revelation 5.1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. In other words, all of prophecy, Old Testament and New Testament, is one unified revelation of the one Savior of the world and the salvation of his one people. And the scroll always represents God's salvation plan. In some cases, all of history, but specifically redemptive history. And in Daniel, it's sealed because the mystery was not revealed until Christ was revealed, until the revelation of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Peter wrote, we've looked at this a few times too, 1 Peter, starting in verse, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you by who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so the tested genu genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. This is my final salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was in indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is, again, we've seen this passage a few times, this is the purpose of the book of Revelation. And this is the purpose of the scroll. This is the purpose of the whole Bible, Old Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy. It is God revealing his truth to his people. This is what the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament prophets prophesied of. This is what Peter's telling us. Even though they didn't know on that side of the cross when Christ would be revealed, when that revelation would come. But on this side of the cross, that salvation has been revealed. And as redemptive history marches on, we are told here, we look forward to the outcome of our faith. We look forward to that final salvation of God's people. And we will see here in the book of Revelation, with each seal that is broken in this scroll, some aspect of history is revealed. Some of it is tribulation for God's people, but some of it's the final salvation of God's people. Some of it is the judgment of the world at Christ's second coming. Again, Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven words, seven seals. So the word here, translated sealed, is used only here in the New Testament. And there's very little extra biblical evidence of the word being used. It's a compound word made up of the word sealed and a prefix that means thoroughly. 
See, it's communicating. This scroll wasn't sealed with that regular wax seal that was often used on scrolls that was meant to keep them closed until they were delivered to the one who needed to read them. No, this was sealed with intention to keep it sealed to everyone but one person, as we'll see. But the other thing to note is the description of the seven seals. This doesn't refer to a scroll with seven seals on the outside keeping it closed. No, what would be done sometimes is that the scroll would be sealed at different points. This scroll is sealed at seven different points. Meaning you can break the first seal, you can unroll it a little bit, read what it says, and then you get to another seal. Then when you break that seal, you can unroll a little bit more, and so forth and so on. And we'll see, this is really what happens. One seal is broken, some aspect of history is revealed, another is broken, something else is revealed. And these, seal, these seals each reveal some aspect. But it's not revealing history chronologically necessarily. They just reveal different aspects of history between the two comings of Christ. And the point here is that the number seven is symbolic. It has seven seals for a reason. The number seven, remember, is symbolic of perfection or completeness. This is why we saw in previous chapters there were seven lampstands, seven stars, and seven spirits that represent all churches and all Christians. Every church and Christian where the Holy Spirit dwells. So that means here, once we see the seventh seal broken, we're going to have gotten a complete revelation of the time between Christ's coming. And this scroll represents then all of history from Christ's first advent, which is why, as we're going to see, only the lamb slain can open the seal. Only the lamb slain can start to unveil this history up to the consummation of our salvation when history is, with the breaking of the seventh seal, completed. But there's more here. The idea of a sealed word from God points to something else. In the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 29, God reprimands Israel for not believing the words of the prophets, and he says this. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. When they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord says, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So what God is saying here, his truth, which the prophet was speaking to Israel, his truth would be sealed. It would be hidden because of the unbelief of the people that he was prophesying to. And the New Testament draws from this passage at a couple points. Like when Jesus reprimands the religious leaders of his day for putting their tradition ahead of a right understanding of the word of God, he quotes Isaiah. Mark 7, starting in verse 6. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. He said, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Again, the truth was hidden from them, was sealed from these men because of their unbelief. That's why they couldn't believe in Christ. Then in 1 Corinthians, Paul cites the last part of the passage. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of a discerning I will thwart. Well, Paul goes on to say, after a callback to this Isaiah passage, that the lost not only do not understand the word of God and the truth of the gospel, the unsaved cannot understand the word of God and the truth of the gospel. Only those to whom God has given his spirit can understand the truth and have a saving knowledge of the gospel because only faith can understand the word of God. So Peter said in the passage we just read from 1 Peter, and Isaiah touches on it previously when he says in Isaiah 8, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, 
And Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Isaiah was saying, though, there were some who would not be able to hear the word. It was bound. They weren't going to be able to understand it. Yet Isaiah says he himself, he would place his faith, his hope in the Lord. In other words, the idea of sealing God's word or the scroll or the book or of a testimony, however it's used in the Old Testament, it means that there are two types of people. Okay, There are those who understand and believe the truth of God by faith, and there are those who cannot understand or believe the truth. We either believe it by faith, because look, that final seal has not been broken, right? We do not at this moment see the outcome of our faith. We have not seen our final salvation. But we are called to faith while the rest of redemptive history unfolds. So we either, by faith, believe it and await our blessed hope, or we don't believe it and that final judgment will be ours when history is completed and that seventh seal is broken. So we are called to, by faith, believe the promise based on what Christ has already done. And that is, as we have seen, how we persevere through the trials and tribulations that are in the here and now until Christ returns. And that is why we get a glimpse of that final salvation throughout the Bible. Especially here in the book of Revelation, we'll see it here as we get through these, this, this scroll in a few weeks. We are being called to faith until our final salvation. Now this is why the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 11. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And we use this often, right, to talk about our faith and our hope. But he's really pointing us to the history of the Old Testament saints. He's pointing to people who endured, that persevered in the face of trials and tribulations, even though Christ had not yet come. That's why he, he finishes the chapter with this. And all these, all of these Old Testament saints, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Like Pastor Dave Langford said last Sunday during communion, the Old Testament saints are saved the same way the New Testament saints are. We are saved the same way Isaiah the prophet was, by faith in Jesus Christ. The scroll of prophecy was the same for them as it is for us. Only their faith was all forward-facing. Their faith was all based on promise. But our faith, now that Christ has come the first time, our faith is forward-facing to our final salvation because we also can face back at the cross to see what Christ has already done. That isn't something better that God has provided for us. And that means on this side of the cross, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, on this side of the cross, we, the church, we make perfect, we complete, we fully reveal God's design for his people of all time. This is what Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence to our faith in him. And then what Paul says, because of the plan of God to have one people of all time revealed in the church after Christ's coming, Paul says that should result in faith. It was the same thing the writer of Hebrews says. Starting in chapter 12, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since we have the history of the Old Testament saints who didn't even know Christ crucified, they only had the promise since we are surrounded by, by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand 
of the throne of God. This is all a pointer to Christ. Christ, who was the object of our faith. Christ, who was the Lamb of God, endured the cross and ascended on high. As we see here in Revelation, he has ascended to the right hand of God and to whom we hold fast and we testify to until his glorious return when the seventh seal is broken. When history is complete and we, New Testament saints and Old Testament saints together, are made perfect. Amen? This is why only Christ can unseal the scroll. Because by his work, he ensured the final result and he set in motion these end times, moving inevitably towards that end. And we see that. Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. The vision continues. John says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So this mighty angel yells out. We'll see angels throughout the vision. It's a feature of apocalyptic literature, as we spoke about. We saw this at the start of the letter. John says in Revelation 1.1, he says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, so he sends an angel, and here, an angel is part of the vision, and he is, by asking this question, revealing the fact that none but Jesus can unseal the scroll. Look how this unfolds. He asks this in verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Remember what we said, this is just continuing the vision that we saw in chapter 4. Just two verses prior to this, we read this in Revelation 4.11. The 24 elders fall down before Christ, casting their crowns before him and say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Who is worthy? Christ is worthy. Christ alone is worthy. And we see that in the next part of the passage. The angel asks that question, who is worthy? And look what John says in verse 3. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. John tells us that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could unseal the scroll. The idea of on the earth or under the earth is a way of saying no person, no human being alive on earth, and no human being dead, as in in the grave, under the earth. No mere human, he says, can open the scroll. But he also says no one in heaven could open the scroll. And here he is standing in heaven, right? We already saw it. He is staring at the incarnate and glorified Christ. And I just said, didn't I just say that only Christ could open the scroll? But here's the thing. Not just Yahweh on the throne, not Christ in his deity. He can't just open the scroll. Because if God just allowed salvation of the elect without a sacrifice, as if he would just forget our sin, well, then he wouldn't be God. God is perfectly holy, as we've seen. We saw that the cry of the creatures, holy, holy, holy. He is perfectly gracious. He is perfectly loving. He is perfectly forgiving, as we've already seen. But God is also perfectly just. To allow sin to go unpunished would mean that God was less than perfectly just, and then he would not be God. See, justice requires that the debt for our sin be paid. So God cannot just forgive our sin. But what about the four living creatures, representing Christ in his incarnation in his first advent? Christ who took on humanity and lived the perfect life we couldn't live. Who met every requirement of the law. Who succeeded in the perfect law of God that we broke by nature, because of our sin in the garden, and that we broke and still break through our actions in this life. Surely, Christ who lived perfectly and therefore needed no justice meted out could open the scroll and save us, right? No. The incarnation and perfect life of Christ were not enough to satisfy the justice of God. It wasn't enough to break the first seal, to set in motion the sure end of every believer. Who John was seeing? Christ in his incarnation, represented by the four living creatures. Christ in his deity, represented by him who sits on the throne. 
He alone could not open this scroll. See, the angel addresses the whole world, the whole cosmos. He wants to find somebody worthy to open the scroll. And nobody we've considered yet is worthy. And look at John's reaction. Verse 4, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look, look into it. John wept loudly, not because he wanted to see what was in the scroll out of some kind of curiosity. No, the scroll contains our salvation. That's what was written in the scroll. It is the plan of God that Ezekiel saw. It's the plan of God that Daniel saw. It is Christ coming to win salvation for God's people. John is weeping because there was nobody alive on earth that could win salvation. There was nobody who was in the grave that could win salvation. There was nobody in heaven, as John was seeing it at that moment, that could win salvation. There was only one who could win salvation for God's people. Not just God. Not just Christ and his humanity. Only Christ crucified could win our salvation. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of a tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Said he could open the scroll and its seven seals. One of the elders, one of the saints in heaven, tells John, don't cry, but look. He says, behold, look, the lion of a tribe of Judah, the root of David, the conqueror, he can open the scroll. He can initiate and complete God's salvation for his elect. And he is, Christ is the lion of a tribe of Judah. Remember we saw that the creature with the face of a lion represents the kingly aspects of Christ's ministry. And this idea of the lion of a tribe of Judah goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. God made the promise, the covenant of grace, the promise of salvation with our father Abraham, and God sealed it as a covenant, a covenant that God alone swore to when you read it. God took on all the responsibility of that covenant. And that promise passed, according to God's sovereign choice, to Isaac. Not Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn, to Isaac. And Isaac, according to God's sovereign choice, passed the promise to Jacob, and not Esau, the firstborn. And Jacob, renamed Israel, on his deathbed, he passed the promise, according to God's sovereign choice, he passed the promise to Judah, his fourthborn son. Genesis 49. Judah, this is, this is Israel talking, Jacob. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is the promise that was made to Abraham by God, passed to Judah, and it predicts the coming of Christ, the one who will be king forever, the one who will shed his own blood to become king. This is the line of a tribe of Judah. But we see here, he is also the root of David. Again, Revelation 5.5. 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Said he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What is this root of David? Let's go back to the book of 2 Samuel. David is king. And he plans to build a temple for God. But God tells him through the prophet Nathan, he says, no, you will not build a temple for me. No, your son will build the temple. And while David's son Solomon did build the physical temple, God points beyond that to a greater son of David, to Jesus Christ, who is the true temple. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, talking to David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. 
and I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that means to die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." You can see here how the promise of a physical temple and a spiritual temple and the promise of a direct physical son and a promise of a future greater son are all intermingled here. He who would build the physical temple and be disciplined when he sins is David's son Solomon. He who would be the spiritual temple, who would build the spiritual temple that is the church, he who would reign forever, that is Christ. And it's this covenant promise of a Davidic covenant that Isaiah prophesies about when he says this in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. <clears throat> Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of a knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Jesse was David's father. Isaiah here is speaking of the one promised in the covenant with David by God. And while there is so much we can talk about in this Isaiah 11 passage, just notice, this root of Jesse, or root of David, the spirit would rest on him. Just like the spirit rested on Christ in his baptism. We're told here he will not judge as man judges. We're told he will bless the poor and the meek. We're told he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, which as we've seen, Christ will do at his return. And we see here this description of the wolf lying with the lamb, the calf with the lion, children playing by cobras. This is a picture of a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more death. This is talking about Christ. This is the root of David that will make all this come to pass. Again, Revelation 5.5. 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the line of a tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. It also says he has conquered. See, Christ has conquered through his perfect life and atoning death. And as we saw with the letters to the seven churches, every single one was an encouragement for the church to conquer. And we saw we conquer. Why do we conquer? Because Christ makes his victory our victory. He was victorious over sin and over death because he obeyed every jot and iota of the law, but took the punishment of sin on himself anyway. So we see, putting it all together, Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham as the line of a tribe of Judah. Christ is the fulfillment of a Davidic covenant as the root of David. 
He is the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant as the conqueror who beat sin and death through his perfect life and true sacrifice. Because he fulfilled the law but died in our place on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's just what John sees here. Revelation 5, 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Here's the focal point of what John sees. Notice again, not him on the throne. because It's not just Christ and his deity. He can't open the scroll. Not the, the, the living creatures, the four living creatures. As I said, it was Christ's incarnation. Not the elders, nobody on earth, nobody under the earth. No human could do it. No, only the lamb slain. And notice, no one in the grave. He's now, he's in heaven. The lamb slain is no longer in the grave. He conquered the grave. The lamb was slain, but he is now alive forever. And he alone, as we see here, is worthy to open the scroll. He alone is worthy to achieve the salvation of his people. And he did, and he yet will. 